Hey, you know that cool new measuring system you've been seeing on TV and on the web when you watch baseball games? We'll ask Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Stats for Major League Baseball Advanced Media, all about it next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right-hander for the Giants throws. Swing and a miss! And that's it! The Giants are world champions as they come pouring out of the dugout. Circling Brian Wilson, the bullpen. Flying in from left center field, dancing, hugging, and celebrating for all you Giants fans, wherever you are. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 15th. It's show number 55 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and it is another great show just for you. In just a few minutes, we'll talk with Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Statistics for Major League Baseball Advanced Media, about that new tracking system that measures fielding, base runners, and batted ball data. We'll also ask him about Major League Baseball Advanced Media's applications outside the sport, some hitters and pitchers he's commented on via Twitter, and his studs and duds for the stretch. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at hard contact index and its effect on fantasy production. In our regular pitcher matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at King Felix against David Price and more. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler talks about surviving August and beyond. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're measuring these ballplayers every which way. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Let's start with the Jeff Tomich Facts and Flukes column that he wrote earlier this week at BaseballHQ.com. And one thing that I really like about Facts and Flukes is at the end of the column, the writers have a little section they call first impressions and that's a look at rookies and uh, new players to the league and in this particular facts and flukes Jeff Tomich looked at the Cubs starting pitcher Kyle Hendricks. Kyle Hendricks is suddenly getting a lot of love and he should be I mean a 1.73 ERA in his first five his first six major league starts do, doing great and obviously now a, a solid part of that Cubs rotation uh, after the trade deadline but you know the, the thing to, to look at is and the question to ask is can he keep this up is he worth jumping all over in terms of your uh uh, of uh, of your fab if he's still out there. The the facts and flukes uh, column, the first impression thing that Jeff Tommy wrote, I think is really very, very good on Hendricks. Hendricks has a very weak DOM rate, a 5.3 DOM. He doesn't have a, his fastball sits right around 90 miles an hour, uh, kind of right on the 89, 90 cusp. And so he doesn't get a huge number of strikeouts. And what that means is a lot of balls are getting put in play. Uh, he's doing doing well at limiting base runners. He's not walking guys. His control has been excellent. Um, but at this point, he's out pitching his ERA by a, by a huge margin. 
or it's XERA. X expected earn run average 3.47, earn run average 1.73. So while that XERA is nothing to sneeze at, um, you, you've got to think at this point we may have seen the best we're going to get out of Kyle Hendricks. He doesn't have a great pedigree, eighth round draft pick, uh, didn't didn't uh, certainly roar through the minor leagues. So while a solid pitcher, he's not likely to continue what he's been doing. And so uh, as Jeff Tomich says, we should expect that ERA and that XERA to kind of converge over the balance of the season. Uh, so somebody, the guy who may be, uh, may be worth getting on your roster if he's out there, but certainly not a 1.73 ERA guy. No, certainly not. But uh, the, the fact that he keeps the, uh, the walks so far down has led to a 1.01 whip so far this year, under one for the last 31 days, in fact. And uh, the projection that we have for him is a 125 whip, which seems a little pessimistic in my view. But, you know, the, the guys who do that are smarter about the, that kind of thing than I am. But there's something to be said about this guy's uh, terrific command. You know, his command ratio has been as high as five the last week or so, usually right around three, which means he's striking out three guys for every walk. And it's not because he's striking guys out, as you said. It's because he's not walking anybody. And and he has a very low home run rate so far. Now, that could correct. It's been 6% of his fly balls for home runs. But he's got a 51% ground ball rate, and that's been pretty consistent. And when you're getting that many ground balls, good things can happen. Yeah, they can indeed. I mean, that ground ball rate certainly is a is a big help in terms of the way he pitches. This guy has got a, a kind of a, a different profile. He needs the ground ball, certainly. He needs the ground ball outs. He needs to keep the ball in the ballpark. And so far, he's done that very, very well. Stephen Nickrand had a starting pitcher's buyer's guide this week looking at home road splits, Nick, and one of the names that popped up on his list as an extreme home road split was Ryan Vogelsong of San Francisco. He's got a 358 ERA, 125 whip overall for the season. That's a 6 or $7 pitcher, but at home, this guy's really something. He is indeed. I mean, you, you look at what he's done at home. He has a 3.04 ERA, 1.11 whip, uh, 7.9 dom, 1.6 control, 118 BPV when he's pitching at home. This is the time of the season when, you know, if things are close in your league, you may want to start streaming guys based on based on where they're pitching, what their matchups look like. It's a good time to use the uh, uh, the matchups column and the and the matchups uh, the matchups index on, on Baseball HQ. But Ryan Vogelson is certainly a guy to use when he's pitching at home. On the road, you probably want to avoid him. A 4.370 RA, 1.49 WHIP. But if you can can use him only at home and get that 3.04 ERA and 1.11 whip for the next month and a half, could be could be very valuable to you. And I wonder if the home advantage that he's gleaning is in home runs. It's a tough park to hit home runs in in San Francisco, and home runs have been uh, have been uh, Vogel Song's uh, bet noir for a, a number of years. He 1.5 homers per nine back in 2004. He got it down under one for a while. Then last year back uh, back up to 1.3. And uh, and I wonder if the San Francisco advantage is that is that big ballpark. Yeah, it may indeed be that. I mean, that's certainly the key for Vogel Song is keeping the ball in the park because he doesn't have a he's got a fairly high ground, a fly ball rate, thirty eight percent fly ball rate, uh, and so that uh, that he he certainly needs to keep the ball in the park in order to keep that ERA down. It used to be a little bit higher on the ground ball percentage. That's something to take a look at this year so far. 38% both ground ball and fly ball and a 24% line drive rate, which is 
not great. You're usually looking for something around 19 or 20 because 20, 24% means a few more hits, which is going to naturally affect his uh, his whip ratio. We're projecting, you know, 1.25, 1.26 the rest of the way. Yeah, certainly, certainly, uh, you know, Ryan Vogel's song, I think, is a, is a good, if you look overall at the projection for the rest of the way, it's negative, a, a minus $5 value. But uh, what he's doing at home would make him much more valuable than that if you can use him only in those situations. Also in that Stephen Nickrand column, he looked at Washington's starting pitcher Tanner Rourke, who's having a terrific year. $18, he's got 11 wins, a 286 ERA, 109 whip, 112 strikeouts, not bad in 148 innings, but this is the opposite situation of Vogelsong. Here's a pitcher you want to start away from home. Yeah, you know, for some for some strange reason, uh, he he's becomes he's a good pitcher uh, even at home. A sixty nine BPV is is nothing to sneeze at. But on the road, seven point six DOM, one point four control, a uh, one fifteen BPV. Certainly uh, a, a guy to start on the road. The interesting thing about Tanner Rourke, if you look at the games that he's pitched, is here's a guy who has um, has occasional blowups. And that has kept his ERA up. For example, he'll give up five runs in a game or four runs in a game. But then a stretch where he gives up nothing but one run per game. Uh, before this lie, he, he had a blow up at Baltimore uh, just about uh, early this week. Five run runs and six, six and a third innings. But then it, it, then uh, one run, four four games ahead of that, only one earned run. Uh, came back and pitched on the ninth and, and gave up only one earned run. So uh, a, a guy that is prone, I think, to some... An occasional bad outing, most of those happening at home, uh, but then very, very strong when he's pitching on the road and, and generally very strong uh, in terms of, uh, of limiting the number of runs. Yeah, and I wonder if this is, to some extent, there's some randomness built into this, because earlier in the season, if you and I had talked about this exact thing, or if Stephen Nickrand had researched it on uh, you know mid-May rather than uh, mid-August... He might have told a different story. I was just looking at his record and his two worst starts of the year in April and May. One was at Atlanta, five earned runs, and another one at Philadelphia, another away game, seven earned runs. And then all of a sudden, the, the, it's like he wheeled around 180 degrees and all of his uh, away starts are 0-2-1, although he had one at Chicago, which was four, which is pretty tough. But other than that, do you think that there's an element of randomness here that we ought to be at least aware of? Well, yeah, I think there has to be, you know, and you look at, you look at this over a couple of seasons, for example, on some pitchers, and you'll see that those things, those things do flip back and forth. So there's certainly some randomness, I think, built into the system. But at this point in the season, we've got enough starts that I think you have to look at the fact that for some strange reason, he seems to pitch a little bit better on the road, or at least is now, uh, than, uh, than he, than he does at home. And who knows why that would be happening. Bullpen's columnist Doug Dennis had a column this week at BaseballHQ.com, Nick, looking at relievers by their leverage index. And uh, before we talk about any particular players from the list, maybe you could briefly explain to listeners who might not fully get it, what is leverage index? The leverage index simply measures uh, the kind of situation into which a relief pitcher comes. Is he brought in, for example, when... uh, uh, when it's, it's merely cleanup time and this team is so far ahead that there's nothing going to happen, or is he brought in when they're so far behind that uh, he really can't have any effect on the ball game? That's going to lead to a low leverage index. Or does he come in when the game is tied? Does he come in when there are guys on base? Uh, does he come into a very difficult 
kind of kind of pitching situation. And a high leverage index means that a guy is being used in those kind of crucial situations. And so the column that Doug did is a very a really interesting column was to look at the high leverage index indices in both leagues kind of pull out the closers. Of course, in general, the closers leverage index indices are going to be high. But then to look at other guys who uh, who have a very high leverage index. And one of those guys is Mike Dunn. And if you go look at Mike Dunn's record for the year, here's a guy that's in pitched 56 games, all in relief, 10 wins, 5 losses. Amazing. A relief pitcher, 56 inning with 10 wins. That's a huge number of vulture wins, and certainly someone to look at if you want to want to pick up a few wins cheap down the stretch. Yeah, what I like about the leverage index as an indicator is it indicates to me that the manager is willing to put this guy in when the game is on the line. And so much of relief pitching success is so dependent on manager decisions. And it's clear from the leverage index that he has placed a great deal of trust in Mike Dunn all year. He's putting him in in these situations. That's how come he's picked up 10 vulture wins, could pick up some more because we know that he has the trust of the manager. And, he, of course, he has the skills to back it up, we should also say. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, the skills are there. This guy's got a 114 BPV. So we're looking at, at an elite relic picture, 10.6 DOM, uh, excellent command. So there, there are certainly solid skills there. But uh, it really is amazing. Uh, the other night he, he pitched two innings the first time he's done that all year and got another win. So... Um, Certainly, a, a guy to keep, the kind of guy to look at in that entire column is valuable in that way, in 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 uh, bringing our attention to uh, a number of pitchers who could pick up uh, wins down the road. They're not going to get many innings for you because only pitching one inning at a time. But being brought into crucial situations uh, when the game is tied, when the game is on the line, uh, and uh, eventually being able to pick up some vulture wins. All right, Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you again next week. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchups for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Hey, Jock, welcome back. Hi, PD. Good to be here. I guess the story this week has been injuries, lots of DL uh, stints, lots of player movement. It's going to shake things up at both the major league level and for fantasy owners. Let's start in Detroit, where the Tigers were coasting along towards an AL Central win. All of a sudden, they've just got nailed by injuries, especially on the pitching staff. Annabelle Sanchez strained a right chest muscle. That's going to be four or five weeks. Joaquin Soria strained a left oblique. He hadn't been effective anyways, really. And then the big news, Justin Verlander had a terrible outing, then an MRI. He's got some shoulder inflammation. We're not sure exactly how that's going to affect him, although his velocity is definitely down. A lot of this was covered by Mike Shears in Playing Time Today. Yeah, the bottom really fell out of Detroit. Uh, it was it was just after our last show last week. And uh, uh, when you get three significant uh, pitching problems like this, it tends to shake things up a little bit, to say the least. Um, Robbie Ray is going to be taking Annabelle San- Sanchez's place, and he, he's going to miss uh, Sanchez is going to miss about four or five weeks. And Robbie Ray is a pretty inexperienced guy. He has a long-term future, uh, maybe at the back of the rotation, but uh, but right now he hasn't been all that impressive. Uh, Verlander's MRI reportedly turned out negative, a little bit of inflammation. Um, they had a, uh, a prospect named Buck Farmer, another guy with a future, uh, come up and, and do a spot start for him. He's back down again, but he doesn't have much experience. Um, the, the bullpen situation with Soria out and Nathan still 
really, really struggling in the closer role is just day to day. Uh, they, they tried to go with Jabba Chamberlain for a save. He didn't get the job done. Um, they're almost going day to day. And there's, other than maybe picking up Jabba or uh, Al Albuquerque in the bullpen, both of whom have put up good good numbers in relief but don't have much experience at closing, I don't see much opportunity here for fantasy owners. Well, I saw an opportunity just before the deadline and traded to acquire Joe Nathan, who immediately started pitching terribly. Java Chamberlain has also looked pretty bad. They put him in there in the closer role in a couple of situations, at least uh, high leverage situations, one closing, one save opportunity and another late hold, and he really blew up both times and didn't look good. And now, am I reading this correctly? Jim Johnson is pitching in the organization at Toledo, and they might actually be thinking about him? Yeah, that 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 kind of that kind of tells you where where Detroit is right now. They're trying to salvage Jim Johnson. He's now in AAA Toledo, and they're thinking about calling him up. Obviously, he has more experience at closing than either uh, Jabba or Al Albuquerque. Um, but he's been a, he was a disaster for Oakland this year. And it's interesting that you mentioned Ch- Chamberlain because he's actually had a very good year. His BPIs are good. But every time they put him in the highest leverage situation uh, that, that, that he can be thrust into, he doesn't tend to do very well. You know, we used to have that thing at BaseballHQ.com, skills, opportunity, and guile. And a lot of people didn't like that idea of guile, the ability to make something out of nothing, the ability to cope with the strain and stress. But gosh, maybe there's something to it. He's not the first guy in history to struggle once put into that particular role, despite a good set of skills. No, we've talked about this with other pitchers this year, like Carlos Carrasco, who actually turned it a pretty good start last yeah, week, uh, which may have mildly surprised both of us. Uh, he has the stuff, but he's he's another guy who's always kind of wilted when the lights have turned on, and, and so far, job has been that way as well. And while Detroit has been struggling, the Kansas City Royals have been looking fantastic, have moved into first place, and they made a move as well after the regular trade deadline. They The Minnesota Twins snuck uh, Josh Willingham through waivers and traded him to Kansas City for a minor leaguer. Mike Shears also wrote about this in Playing Time today, and Bob Berger covered it in Playing Time tomorrow. So first of all, where does Josh Willingham fit in in Kansas City? Well, in Kansas City, you still have Eric Hosmer out with an injury, which has moved Billy Butler over to first base and has opened up the playing time. Uh, Raul Ibanez has not, again, hasn't done that well in his uh, in his DH uh, time uh, with, with Butler over at first. And it would seem like Willingham and Ibanez would be a perfect platoon. Um, I don't see much of a platoon there, frankly. I don't see Ibanez getting a lot of playing time. I think, at least for the short term, um, Willingham's going to get a shot. Now, his power indices are still pretty good, but he really hasn't produced home runs over a sustained period like he has in the past. He's going to have to hit soon because when Hosmer comes back... um, I just don't see. Uh, it, uh, obviously, rosters will have expanded by them, so there's there's no danger of Willingham or or even as being cut. But I don't see their playing time staying uh, the same if uh, if they're not producing, particularly given the outfield play of uh, Lorenzo Cain and Gerard Dyson. And we should say that the Kansas City pitching staff has been something of a flyball staff, which is okay given their playing environment at uh, at Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City. It's a big park, a lot of room out there in the outfield, and it helps Kansas City if they've got guys like Kane and Dyson running around out there in the hay, tracking down those fly balls that their pitchers give up a lot of. Yep, absolutely. Outfield defense with fly ball pitchers, you got to have it. And uh, Jason Vargas has been one of the big beneficiaries of that. He's not an outstanding pitcher, but he's having a pretty good year. And it could be, I haven't looked at it in any detail, but it could be that the 
the outfield at Kansas City is just doing a good job turning his fly balls into outs, which may not have been the case in his uh, previous stops in the in the big leagues. Now, I also mentioned that, of course, with Willingham leaving the Twins, there's going to be some playing time open up there. How does that shake out? Well, this coincided with Joe Maurer coming back, and he's going to go to first base, which is going to push uh, newcomer uh, Kenny Vargas over to DH. Vargas has been hitting real well since he's come up. Um, I think the Twins are pretty much committed to the kids right now in playing Vargas and uh, and Oswaldo Arcia. Uh, I mean, uh, Arcia has struggled a lot during the year. He's actually been showing some signs recently in the past week or two. But there's really nothing to lose for Minnesota in terms of one losses. So if you're looking for playing time, both Vargas and Arcia are going to continue to play, particularly with Willingham gone. Of the two of them, I like. I think I like Vargas better, although he's by far the less experienced player for the Twins. Arcia seems to always be struggling with various kinds of injuries. He's had hand injuries, wrist injuries, uh, hamstring injuries. He's he's. I have him in a, on a team, and and it's frustrating because when he's in the lineup, he can hit, but he's he just has so much trouble staying in the lineup. Meanwhile, Vargas has come up. He's played in twelve games so far. It's a very small sample, and I grant you that. And he's certainly striking out a lot. He's got sixteen strikeouts compared with only two walks, which is not his pattern in the minors. But he is hitting 300. He's got a couple of home runs already and 11 RBIs. And he's drawing comparisons to David Ortiz, another big dude who's a sort of first baseman, but really a DH. But he's a switch hitter. Yeah, we're looking at a real small sample here with Vargas. And obviously the Twins like what they see in terms of his improvement this year. Uh, his minor league numbers suggest that he's made better contact, and that's why they've rushed him to the majors without any AAA time. He's very much holding his own right now with the Twins. He doesn't look overmatched at all. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he finishes out the year. And I think we need to be patient about that strikeout business. In the minors at AAA, just before he got his call-up this year, he had 68 strikeouts, but 43 walks. So that's about one and a half strikeouts for every walk, and that's pretty much acceptable in the modern game, especially for a guy who's going to hit uh, probably 20-plus home runs in a full season once he gets his feet under him. Absolutely. That's a fine strikeout-to-walk ratio for a, for a guy who's going to hit 20-plus home runs. More injury news, this time out of Texas. You Darvish got sent to the DL with some kind of inflammation in the elbow, which is always something you don't want to hear. And Robbie Ross was called up to take his place on the roster, certainly not going to take his place as far as production. Rod Truesdell in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com uh, mentioned this information, and you noted Ross's resurgence at AAA a couple of weeks ago when you were writing about the American League West in playing time tomorrow. You thought Robbie Ross was going to be back in the rotation anyway, so so how does he look as a potential contributor for fantasy owners as we go down the stretch? Well, if, if you're just looking at Ross's recent minor league performances, he, he looks very promising. And the skills he's flashed as a relief pitcher, uh, featuring that high ground ball rate and decent swing and miss with the Rangers, has always been attractive. But immediately, as a, as a major league starter, he's been really inconsistent. Um, I, I, I think he's risky right now for these final six weeks. If you're going to roster Ross, you've got to be thinking about him as a long-term play. The Rangers are going to have rotation problems in 2015. I think he's going to be a decent candidate then. I think he has some skills. I'm just not, I'm just not real confident in him now, particularly 
on a Ranger team where even if he does pitch decently, he's not going to get a lot of bullpen or offensive support, it seems. Manny Machado of the Orioles went on to the DL with a sprained knee, as Matt Dodge reported in playing time today. So how does the Baltimore third base and at-bat cascade figure? Well, this past Wednesday night, we saw Chris Davis at third base, and, and it, it's actually put uh, Steve Pierce and Delman Young in the same lineup, which is, is kind of a rarity. You might see Ryan Flaherty take over some of those third base at-bats. Um, Pierce had been slumping in the second half and had been starting to see his playing time dwindle, so he wins a little here. Delman Young, who actually had been producing a little at the uh, at the end of uh, July, um, he's going to get a little more playing time here. This actually hurts the Orioles on defense, I think. Uh, offensively, it might be a wash because Davis hadn't been doing that well. And boy, is there any chance Chris Davis gets to 20 games at third base and adds that eligibility for next year? Yeah, that's a real good question. Uh, I guess it might depend on how long um, how long Manny Machado's out, but uh, yeah, that would be uh, that would make him a little more attractive, wouldn't it? Well, if he would start hitting, it would make him more attractive still. <laughs> I don't even know if his average is over 200 yet. Uh, finally, Tom Kephart noted in playing time tomorrow that David Murphy of the Indians is going to be out for four to five weeks. He's got a strained oblique. Nick Swisher was already on the shelf. So what's going on in the Cleveland outfield situation? Well, it's interesting because I was looking at the uh, at the Cleveland outfield uh, just the other day, the second game of the the doubleheader with uh, with Arizona. And I didn't recognize that outfield. Uh, Michael Brantley was out. They had uh, Zach uh, Walters in the outfield. They had Ryan Rayburn, and they had Tyler Holt, uh, all names uh, aside from Rayburn, who hasn't been particularly good this year, that you're just not that familiar with in Cleveland. Chris Dickerson is going to get some time, um, particularly with uh, with Murphy out and also Nick Swisher gone. Dickerson started out pretty well this year, but his his he's been a journeyman, and his, his BPIs, his plate skills aren't that good. Holt and Zach Walters are at least interesting. Uh, Walters uh, came over from from Washington, trade a couple of weeks ago, and he has really good power. He's a shortstop by trade. He doesn't make great contact, but he's the kind of guy who could hit a lot of home runs down the stretch if he plays. It looks like Cleveland's going to try to make him a utility. Um, Tyler Holt is another interesting guy. He's a little different than Walters. He makes a lot of contact. He can run. He uh, he has uh, good plate skills, doesn't have a lot of power. He profiles as a, as a fourth outfielder, but down the stretch, if you're looking for some on-base percentage, maybe a few steals and hopefully some batting average, if Cleveland does give him some time, he might be able to produce over these last six weeks. And, of course, we have to say that Michael Bourne will be back uh if not, as we launch this podcast on Friday, maybe on on Saturday, and when he comes back, that's going to further clutter the playing time situation. Terry Francona, I was reading about this in the uh, while waiting for Michael Bourne to get back, and he likes Holt and he likes Walters, but as you said, for different reasons. Walters got some pop. Holt has some uh, good defensive skills, so it looks like it's going to be mix and match there, especially once September hits and they can play anybody they want with the expanded rosters. Yeah, it's, it's it's really tough to bet on who's going to get all this time now. I mean, you've got six weeks left in the season. Cleveland is is one of those unique teams that's that's trying to stay relevant, but they're also trying to 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 play for 2015 too in terms of testing a lot of these uh, these youngsters. So I think whoever produces is going to play, and uh, uh, it's it's really uh, let's see what happens with uh, uh, Holt and uh, and Walters. And don't count on Bourne. The team has already said he's going to get more days off as they try to get him all the way back to full health and ready for next year, as you say. Uh, A couple of other things before I let you go, Jock. Tyler Skaggs was already out with Tommy John surgery. He was on the DL. Is there any value play here with the replacements? 
Well, not really without uh, taking some risk. Hector Santiago and Matt Shoemaker have really been pitching well lately. They've both been putting up zeros more often than not. But they're both six-inning guys, and, and they, they have downside, too, if uh, if, if they're not on. Um, the Angels are going to lean on the pen more than ever now. So if you're in a strikeout league or, or a keeper league looking out forward, I still like Cam Bedrosium here long-term. He was really good in his two appearances uh, uh, just last week. He got sent down again in the latest roster shuttle, but he's going to be up again, and he will strike out some hitters in September. But will he uh, take over the closer role anytime soon? Because now that they have Houston Street, I understand the Angels hold a relatively price-effective team option on him for next year. Bedrosian's future is now is out to 2016? Oh, that's, yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, Houston Street is an injury risk. Um, I think I think Bedrosian could get a few saves next year, but yeah, he doesn't really project until the angel, for the, uh, as the angel closer until maybe the end of 2015 or in 2016. Over in Oakland, their offense, which had been uh, a dynamo, has been sputtering of late, and the uh, problem wasn't helped any when Jed Lowry got sent to the DL with a broken right index finger. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. For as much credit as Billy Bean gets, and he, and he deserves it for taking care of his pitching, he really didn't take care of his middle infield over the uh, over the trade deadline. Um, he he already had a problem at second base, and now with with Jed Lowry um, uh, going to the DL, he's got real offensive problems in the middle of that infield. Andy Perino is going to be up and playing, but he's never really done anything offensively at the at the big league level. And like you've said. The, uh, the A's offense have been sputtering uh, since the All-Star break. Uh, they scored 11 runs in one game against uh, Kansas City, but they scored two runs or less in all three other games, which obviously gave Kansas City a, a three out of four uh, game series win. Um, the A's are going to need some offense, so I, I think Billy Bean is probably still looking for some middle infielders. And Jason Vargas in that same series I mentioned a, a few moments ago has been pitching really well. He absolutely shut down Oakland. I think a three-hit shutout uh, might have been a complete game even uh, it was earlier this week. And boy, when you when you looked at Oakland's offense in the start of the year and you said they're going to throw Jason Vargas, who's a he's having an okay year, but he's a journeyman, let's be honest. And to find out that Jason Vargas is throwing a three-hit shutout at the Oakland Athletics, boy, that was sub- really surprising news. Yeah, this is this is a fascinating race right now because uh, as badly as the Angel Angels have played, and I, I watch them a lot over here, obviously, um, they have only lost half a game since the All-Star break. So it tells you how badly Oakland's been playing. Both teams have been right around 500 for a long time. The hottest team in the AL West right now is Seattle, and they are just lights out right now, both their offense and their pitching staff. Their rotation is better than anyone's. Yeah, it's going to be a really exciting race. There's uh, probably exciting races in a lot of fantasy leagues as well. Uh, Jock, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll catch up with you again next week. Okay, PD, thanks. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our feature interview, Corey Schwartz of Major League Baseball Advanced Media, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun, so have more fun more often with one-month fantasy games at ChandlerPark.com. One-month games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full-season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups in hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with one-month fantasy games at ChandlerPark.com. This is Ron Chandler, Monthly Fantasy Baseball. More drafts, more pennant races, more fantasy fun, more often. 
give it a try. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes open this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Facts and Flukes coverage looks at Josh Hamilton, Jake Odorizzi, Mark Burley, and more. Stephen Nickrand has a starting pitcher buyer's guide column looking at home road splits. Pretty important down the stretch. And Greg Pyron's batting buyer's guide looks at platoon leaders. Chance to play the matchups. Plus, we have all our regular features, daily analysis of changes in playing time, our buyer's guides, pitcher matchups, minor league coverage, and much more. It's all on the site now and coming up at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our featured expert guest, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Stats for Major League Baseball Advanced Media, and a past guest on the show. So, Corey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate the opportunity to, to join you today. Yeah, it's always fun. Uh, before we get started, how are your teams doing in your various leagues and experts leagues and so on? Uh, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not winning any league. I'm still in the race in two leagues, and two teams are, are, are dead and buried. But, you know, I'm always an optimist, so I figure we got six weeks to try and make something good out of this. That's an interesting point. How late in the season do you keep trying when you've got, uh, you know, you've got some teams that maybe are struggling or not doing well? Are you still trying to gain that extra standing spot, or do you kind of uh, let it go to the side and, and focus on the teams that are in the race? Well, you know, I, I definitely do shift most of my focus towards the teams that are doing better, but I don't give up on the teams that are out of it. Uh, you know, I feel like I still have an obligation to manage those teams, you know, through the finish line, so to speak, um, you know, out of respect to the rest of the league. You know, you can still play spoiler a little bit by stealing a point in some category here or there, and I think that speaks well to the integrity of the league. So I try to never quit on a league if I can, you know, if I can avoid it. Well, and that in turn seems to raise another question. There are fantasy owners out there who believe that once we get to this stage of the year, we're heading in towards the stretch, and, and certainly the, the contenders have separated themselves from the pretenders in a lot of leagues. And some fantasy owners think it's not proper, for want of a better term, for a team near the bottom of the league to make trades or to, to do things that affect the teams who are near the top. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I can see that argument. You know, certainly it's a moot point in, in keeper leagues because the teams at the bottom are incented to keep making moves to improve their teams for the future. Uh, but in non-keeper leagues, there's still an incentive as well, and that just because you may be helping the, you know, the team that's, that's ahead, uh, you know, you may be helping some other team as well. For example, if you trade your closer that may, you know, to, uh, you know, to the team that's in second place, third place, whatever, and needs saves, some other team may pass you in saves, uh, and they they may move up. So if you really if you can look yourself in the mirror and say you're making a fair value based deal um, that you think will help your team move up a few points in the standings here or there uh, and continue to be a factor in the race even from the bottom, then I think that's justifiable. But uh, certainly making trades just for the sake of making trades, you know, playing kingmaker so to speak, I I don't agree with that. I think that's a, that's a pretty good summary of how the how it ought to work. But nobody can fault you for trying to move up from. Ninth to seventh. Uh, I've talked about this on the show before, but it's good practice for when you're trying to move up from third to first in some subsequent year. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, you know, particularly in a league like Tout Wars, which I'm in. Uh, you know, I'm I'm buried near the bottom again, but your finish in the standing affects your Fab budget for the following year. So, you know, on that respect, there's always a reason. You know, an incentive to participate and compete. Uh, and again, you know, you don't want to be seen as the guy who who you know mails it in on a league in in June or July or August. Um, that's really not an enjoyable league to participate in. So if, you want, if you're in first or second place one year and you want to see those teams at the bottom competing and, and keeping the league active, you've got to be willing to do that when you're the guy near the bottom. 
Yeah, and the other thing is, by not doing something, you can be affecting the race. Uh, I can remember I I play in a uh, in an American League only home league that I've been in for more than twenty years, and we've had owners who, you know, at this stage of the year, kind of just stop playing. And and part of it is they make the argument that I don't want to affect the race, but by not doing stuff, you're affecting the race sometimes because if you don't make a waiver claim and it slips all the way through to the guy in fourth place, and all of a sudden he acquires a real good asset. How is that not affecting the race if he's replacing a, a bench player or an injured guy with a contributing player because you didn't take that guy? You are affecting Absolutely. the race. Absolutely. How about if you know? How about if you have DL spots or you know injured players on your roster? If you have Troy Tulowitzki or Carlos Gonzalez or one of those guys, and you don't replace him, you're taking a zero. You're you know you're you're diminishing your opportunity to compete and making it other you know easier for other teams to take points from you, uh, so that's affecting the race as well. I, I totally agree with you. Look, it stinks to be near the bottom of the standings ever. It's not fun. That's not why we play. But you also sign up to be part of the league for a season, and you've got to honor the full season and not just the part where your team is doing well. Speaking of that, do you play in any of the shorter term formats, daily leagues or Chandler's monthly leagues? Uh, I've tinkered around a little bit with the daily leagues. You know, I, I like what Ron is doing with the monthly leagues. I certainly get it. But, you know, I'm a full-season guy. It's just, you know, the mentality I have is that, you know, I, I kind of view the draft and managing the roster as a full-season exercise. Um, and the way I build a roster is based on a certain year-long strategy, you know, churning through a lot of starting pitchers and so forth. Right. So ultimately, that's the league. I, that's the format I prefer. But I do certainly appreciate, you know, the appeal of other formats. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz from Major League Baseball Advanced Media. And Corey, before we go any farther, I know you've been enjoying the renaissance of chocolate-covered Twinkies. How's that been going for you? I'll tell you what, it was like awakenings. You know, once I found them in stores, it was unbelievable. I bought a bunch of boxes, and I had one every day when I got home from work. It was like my, you know, instead of a scotch and a cigar, I was having my chocodile. And just like in the movie, they seem to have disappeared. The last several times I've gone to the supermarket, I haven't been able to find them, and it's a... It's, uh, it's very discouraging, and uh, you know, I I hope this is just uh, you know a little bit of a supply chain you know disruption, and rather than uh, hostess deciding they're just not worth stocking again, because for my money, they're the greatest snack food of all time. Do you? How about the strawberry cream, the banana cream? Do you try the alternatives? I'll try the strawberry cream. I just really I'm not a big banana guy, but ultimately, you know, for me, a chocolate covered Twinkie is about the pinnacle of what a good a great snack should be. Uh, so, you know, I keep going back going back to that one as much as I can. And and nobody in your immediate environment uh, hassles you about the sugar or anything? Uh, you know, I look, I, I've, I've been a junk food addict, addict my whole life. I'm not proud of it, uh, but it is what it is. And my wife, you know, God love her, is an enabler, and she's the one who brings home the box of, tw- box of chocolates when she sees them in the supermarket. So the good news is, though, I have, I have a young daughter, and, and she hasn't, you know, sort of inherited my taste for junk food, uh, which I'm very happy about, so... Uh, you know, I can destroy myself, but I don't want to destroy her too. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the hard part, isn't it? Where you're trying to encourage your kids to you know eat your broccoli, but Daddy, you're eating a donut. Yeah, yeah well, you know, she asked for yeah. right, she asked for a snack late at night before she goes to bed, and I'm like, how about a banana? She's like. What, you're eating chocodiles? I'm like, all right, fine, here's some ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not eating a banana. I'm not a banana guy. Come on. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm not eating bananas. You eat the bananas. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all brown. Well, yeah, that's because nobody likes bananas. We just buy them every 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 week from the grocery store. Exactly, to, to, 
we, we tell ourselves we're eating healthy. We buy the bananas, we put them like in the little decorative bowl on top, you know, on the dining room table, and then they sit there for a week. And turn you to put them in the freezer and promise yourself you're going to make banana bread at some point. And then, like when you yeah, like, exactly. You, you just keep telling yourself. Then when you move and start emptying out your freezer, you think, "Holy cow, we got 600 pounds of bananas in here." Yeah, they've got they've got frost on them. You know, and you put them in a time capsule. But hey, you know what? What can I say? I'm you know I'm old enough that my habits are kind of burned in uh, as relates to fantasy baseball and food habits. So you just have to kind of learn to, you know, indulge yourself a little bit, I guess. Back to business. When you were on the podcast earlier this year, we talked about the new uh, system that you guys were installing to more accurately track defensive and batted balls and create metrics in, in those regards. It's now been named StatCast. How has the rollout gone? It looks great. And how has the response been around the league? Well, StatCast is, is sort of the name we gave to, you know, the content coming out of the system. The, the system itself, the tracking system, we really don't even have a name for it yet. We've kicked around a lot of things internally, but nothing has stuck. But, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the fan reception and media reception and, and reception with the clubs has been tremendous. Everybody's very excited to see the data and see the system up and running in all 30 ballparks. And, and that's, you know, and we're very excited, too. And that's really where our focus has turned over the last few months, rather than, you know, the sort of public-facing, uh, you know, highlight reel, so to speak. We're really very, you know, very much, uh, you know, deep into the operational planning right now, doing the surveys in the ballparks, installing the hardware, building the database architecture, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's very heavy technical boots-on-the-ground stuff right now. And for me, that's really the exciting part, is, uh, is actually building the system and seeing it come to life. So, um, you know, what we've put out so far, the StatCast video clips, has been exciting to build interest in it, but it, a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff has been on the planning stage. Now we're actually going out and, and pulling cable and installing cameras and radars and stuff, and uh, it, it's getting real now. So, you know, we're still very much on, on track and on target to launch in 30 ballparks on opening day next year, and um, I'm excited to see what happens. It's, 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 very ama- it's, it's really exciting technology as a fan and as a person who's working on it. As a layperson, it seems to me that as daunting a technical challenge as it is to install the hardware, the building of the database and the uh, the underlying data structures must be more difficult. It just seems to me. Yeah, it's you know, it's there are a lot of moving parts to it, uh, and obviously, from a business perspective, there are a lot of demands for how we need to use the data. Um, so you have to build a very uh, a very robust and flexible system to support all of those needs. So, you know, without boring everybody too much with the technical details. But I think we we learned a lot during the pitch FX era, which has been since the 2006 postseason. Uh, we've learned how to architect the system and serve all these different business needs and, and integrate with all of the other things we do here at BAM, you know, streaming video and the instant replay system in the ballparks and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm very encouraged by the by the plans that we're starting to put into place in the ballparks uh, that we've got a system that's very well thought out and will, you know, will produce meaningful, useful data right away. Most of the advances in the data from the new system, at least what we've seen of it, deal with defensive measurements, which are fascinating to look at. The speed of first step of some of these guys is, it's like Usain Bolt, really, uh, c- coming out of the blocks. And, and the uh, the data about how accurate the, the outfielders are in chasing down fly balls is, is astonishing. And I imagine it must, in the long run, going to be an excellent coaching tool for, for players who are perhaps not getting uh, to the ball in the most efficient way. But these defensive measurements are not top of mind for most fantasy owners. So what what benefits do you foresee in fantasy owners knowing that Jason Hayward gets a fantastic first step and takes a 98.5% optimal route to the ball? 
Well, yeah, certainly the fielding, you know, the fielding data or the, the data that is, you know, focused on fielding is really a big appeal of this. And I think it matters to the fantasy player because playing time is life. Uh, and we'll start to learn what players are in the lineup because of their defense uh, or, or in spite of their defense. And that will affect playing time, and that's important to know from a fantasy standpoint. But I think also we'll learn a lot about base running. Uh, we'll learn why, why certain players are more effective base dealers than others, and maybe you'll start to see an effect uh, in those categories. We'll see which players are, are smart base runners and what enables slow guys to be considered good base runners and fast guys to be considered bad base runners. Uh, that can play out in, in terms of playing time and also the runs categories. And if you're in leagues that you know, doubles leagues or triples leagues or total bases leagues, that may affect there. So I think ultimately more information is always a good thing. Um, you just have to, again, you know, the, the, the science is in capturing the data. The art is in figuring out how to make the data meaningful and useful. Uh, and I think we've found ways to do that with pitch effects, looking at pitchers and understanding what makes pitchers effective or not. Uh, and I expect over time that will play through to other aspects of fantasy as well. I also thought that just knowing from the data that certain teams are de- defensively better, um, that the, not not just in their in their um, positioning, but also in their in their athletic ability out there. Just knowing that Jason Hayward is so good at tracking fly balls, if there was a couple of other guys like that in his outfield, you might notch up a fly ball pitcher on that team a, a little bit. And conversely, if you've got a bunch of, you know, Greg Luzinski clones plodding around out there, you might think, you know, good pitcher, but too many fly balls are going to be falling in on this guy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Pittsburgh and Baltimore are two teams that very readily come to mind that really are, are excellent defensive teams. And I think that we've really seen that a lot from the metrics over the last couple of years. And look at all of the, the Pirates pitchers, uh, you know, who you really didn't think very much of, who've become you know, useful, if not flat-out valuable fantasy prospects. I mean, nobody was talking about Vance Worley, and, you know, Charlie Morton was a guy you could get on waiver, the waiver wire back in April. Uh, you know, a guy like Chris Tillman uh, for the Orioles, who doesn't have great peripherals but continues to get wins and, and rack up useful innings, you know, these are players, I think, who are benefiting from their defense, whereas other teams that are less effective defensively may be hurting their pitchers a little bit. So I don't, I don't want to name names, but, but they're out there. So, uh, that, you know, this data is valuable in that respect, too. What about improvements in our knowledge of hitters and especially how the ball is struck? I noticed that in, in some of the examples that we've been seeing, either on TV or online, uh, it's really interesting to note that the batted balls, the speed of the ball off the bat, and the launch angle are both recorded. And I'm wondering, is there going to be a way, or do you foresee a way, that this data is going to be aggregated and all of a sudden you're going to find out that a certain player has home run caliber power, and if he just changes the launch angle by three degrees, which is a coachable thing perhaps, that all of a sudden you're looking at a possible breakout, or conversely, that a guy who's getting a lot of home runs is really, it's more luck than it is skill because his launch metrics don't add up. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we, you know, as a, as a baseball analytic community, have hitting figured out a lot better than pitching or defense, and we know that how hard a guy hits the ball and at what angle and, you know, what, what launch angle and vector has a great you know, a great deal to say about what his results look like. So we can say this guy's home run to fly ball ratio of X percent is sustainable or is not sustainable because of, you know, his average fly ball distance and his average launch angle and so forth. I think the benefit here will be just a greater availability of data to make those kind of judgments and to understand which players, you know, are striking the ball hard enough and consistently enough that should translate into better results going forward. Or the opposite, this player hits the ball in general, very poorly, and somehow he's managed to hit 300 with power, we don't think that will maintain. So 
I think we understand what we're looking for with hitting uh, a lot better than we do with fielding and pitching, and now we'll have a little bit more data to make that e- that easier. I read a news article, Corey, the other day about the system that wondered if when you combine the hardware requirements, the software requirements, what I'll call the brainware requirements, you need smart people to figure this stuff out, and the money requirements to handle all of this new data might freeze out amateur baseball analysts like us or hobbyists who have who in the past have done some important groundbreaking work in baseball research. So uh, what's the outlook, do you think, for those of us who don't have a Cray supercomputer in the basement, don't have computer science doctorates from Caltech and so forth? Are we uh, going to be left behind, do you think? No, I, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think, yeah, certainly the system will generate a ton of data, um, but again, you know, that doesn't mean that the average fan or the average analyst, so to speak, needs to have access to all of that data to do meaningful things. Uh, you know, I think we've made it pretty clear here at BAM that, that we intend to make some degree of that data available publicly. I, I'm not being coy when I say I don't know exactly what, but definitely some of it. Uh, and I think we'll be able to provide data that will be useful for people in, in learning about players. Uh, we've done it with PitchFX, and I think it will happen with this system as well. So, you know, there's a tremendous amount of data, but again, the art is in figuring out what's meaningful and what's useful, uh, and I think that is very much going to be achievable over time as people understand what's in the data. Have you guys ever asked the, the ball players what they think of all this stuff? Oh, yeah, there's a great interest in the, in the, you know, the, uh, at the player community as you know, getting more data and more information. We've seen that with PitchFX. You know, see articles every day about players going online and looking at their, you know, their velocity trends and their movement trends and so forth. So I, I expect we'll see this as well with the fielding and, and base running and other kind of data that comes out of the new tracking system. Uh, ultimately, you know, the goal of all of this stuff for the players and for the teams is to improve the, the, the performance of the player and get the best team on the field as often as possible. Uh, and I think players are very much inter- interested in that. Might also have an effect on arbitration and so forth if you can, if you or your agent can come into the arbitration hearing and conversely the team can do the opposite and say, you know, for example, I remember uh, the Red Sox, somebody phoned in and asked Theo Epstein when he was still the general manager there, why do we keep J.D. Drew around? He doesn't have a high batting average, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that. And Epstein just cut him off and said, because he's a great ball player, he does everything right. And and I wonder if the the opportunity will exist for players to come into arbitration hearings or into contract negotiations and say, according to the system, I'm one of the best base runners in the league. I never run into an out. I always take the optimal path around the bases and so forth. Or I'm a terrific fielder. You know, all, all of these kind of things will provide evidence for or against a player when it comes time for those kind of discussions to take place. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that more information will help some players, and, and without naming names, I'm sure it will hurt some players, too, that will find out that they're not as good as we thought. Uh, you know, ultimately, it's a zero-sum game. You know, the value of all of the players on the field, you know, in a manner of speaking, has to add up to the final score. So if it's a 5-3 game and we want to, uh, you know, allocate X amount of credit to this player or that player based on his contribution to, to the win... That means we're saying that he was more valuable than some other player because you only scored five runs and you gave up three, and you have to, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, in a, in a general sense, you have to account for all that. So uh, I do think it will help some players. I think it will hurt some players, but uh, I'm not going to name names or, or speculate who might end up on either side of the fence. Oh, sure, of course not, but uh, it's going to be very interesting in the years to come as this data comes along. And it sounds like, or feels like more, I guess I should say, that we are going to understand better what makes a good contributing ball player than we do now, even though we have a pretty good handle on it. Yeah, and I think more importantly, it'll give us a better feel for 
what certain you know what specific things certain players do well and what specific things they don't do as well because ultimately you know you're building a 25 man roster uh, you know at any given moment not every player is a perfect player and i would argue that no player is a perfect player except for maybe mike trout so you know you have to have players that complement each other and as you said if you know if this player is great defensively and that's why he's in the lineup then you need some guys who maybe all right not as good defensively but they can hit and they can carry the offense uh, you know, ultimately, and this is what I like about, you know, to go back to your question earlier, this is what I like about full season fantasy as opposed to anything else, because I really approach, you know, my draft and my strategy throughout the season with the notion of having a complete roster where there's a reason for every player on the roster, even if it's on my bench or my reserve list, what I expect that player to do to help my team win. And I'm willing to sacrifice in certain areas with this player because I'm getting it. Uh, from that player, and, and he's doing certain other things. So, uh, you know, ultimately data will help you make better evaluations of what each player is bringing to your roster to helping you win. Do you think that we should be trying to figure out a way to get defensive metrics of some kind into fantasy baseball as scoring categories? Well, possibly. You know, we're, we're going to find out, uh, hopefully in the near future, you know, how valuable certain traits are defensively to, you know, to winning. Uh, and if there's a way that we can easily keep track of that in fantasy, yeah, I think that's a great idea. You know, I tend to play mostly five by five leagues because that's what yeah. I've been playing forever. Sure. Um, you know, since, since the, you know, the late eighties when I started playing fantasy baseball, but I'm also reaching a point where I'm just constantly frustrated by the wins category and the RBIs category and, and things of that nature, because they're so context and team dependent and they really don't give you a great feel for, who's the better player, so to speak. So I think in time we'll see an evolution where leagues like that will at least be more common, if not, you know, the sort of mainstay type leagues. I've never really minded runs and RBIs as a category, wins and saves, uh, for this reason. I don't want the game to evolve to the point where we don't have to run the race because we're going to know on as soon as the draft is over pretty much how it's going to go, barring injuries. You know what I mean? And I think there's, there is some value to saying I've got a choice between player A and player B. I'm going to take player B because I think in that lineup, in his team context, he's a better RBI source or a run scored source or you know a win source or whatever. If you're picking between two pitchers, clearly you want a guy who's got a better bullpen and a better offense behind him. Well... Yeah, I, I get that. You know, I'm still coming more and more around to the mindset that the exercise is to, you know, build the players with the best skills. Um, you know, that, you know, I had the roster of the best players and they were born out in their individual performance-based metrics. So, you know, look, there are certain guys who consistently drive in a lot of runs. There are certain guys who consistently score a lot of runs. But take Joey Votto, for instance. He had, what, 73 RBIs last year and, uh, you know, was, was much reviled for that relatively no, low number. But by any other measure, he had a fantastic, I mean, a really terrific offensive season. Uh, but he cost you probably 40 RBIs on your projections, and that's a lot of points in the standings. I just don't think that was a true reflection of the level of his performance. So it's probably a little bit of sour grapes right now because my, my key off, you know, my NFBC team is struggling so badly and runs on RBIs. But, uh, you know, I'm just coming more and more around to that mindset that if a player is good, you shouldn't have to worry about whether or not the team around him is good for him to have value. And that's where sim leagues really do a good job. Do you play any of those? Yeah, I, I've done a couple of those. I'm in one sim league right now with some industry people. My team is not very good, but it's, it's a dynasty league, and I'm kind of in a rebuilding year anyway. Right. So we've traded off pretty much anything that had any value, uh, except for Edwin Encarnacion, who's my pet player, and I refuse to trade. But uh, <laughs> and he's hurt anyway. So right. um, you know, 
that's a league where you do focus a lot more so like uh, on defensive value. So made a big trade a couple of weeks ago uh, leading up to the deadline and got Marcelo Zuna, uh, who I think is probably, you would say, an ordinary offensive player. But my understanding is he's excellent defensively. Uh, so that gives him a little bit of added value in my mind. If for no other reason than the manager's going to be comfortable sending him out there every day, knowing that he's contributing with the leather. Uh, Corey, the last time you were on, we talked about the replay system. Uh, at the time, it was still fairly new and people were f- getting their heads around it. How's it being reacted to now that we have you know two-thirds of a season under our belts? Well, my sense is, you know, look, you, you can read the same newspaper articles I read, but my sense is that it's good and, and everybody feels it could be better. I think that, I don't think I'm speaking out of school by saying that. I think that, you know, the executives in the commissioner's office have stated that as well. Uh, ultimately, I think it really what it boils down to is getting the calls right. Yeah. Um, I think the one thing we've learned if, is that the umpires, by and large, do an excellent job of getting the calls right and some incredibly difficult, you know, bang-bang plays. They get those, you know, mostly right. Uh, and I think the areas where we have evidence to show that, unfortunately, they missed one, we have a system in place now to correct that, and I think that's to everybody's benefit. So, you know, whether or not replay expands to include other types of plays or whatever in the future, uh, I really can't say. But, you know, personally, from where, I, from where I sit, I think it's been absolutely nothing but good for baseball. I agree with you. I think the, the idea that the system allows the calls that are wrong to be corrected is a, a huge benefit to everybody on the field because that's what we want. We want to play on the field to decide the outcome. But having said that, how far away are we from having balls and strikes called by the uh, computerized camera and tracking systems? <laughs> well, I, I, I've, I've never heard the commissioner give any indication that that's likely to happen in the near future, and uh, I'm not going to be commissioner, so uh, as far as I know, that's, that's, not, in, that's not in the plans. Well, this the commissioner is going to be replaced shortly. I just read the other day that the three finalists had their presentations at head office, uh, so I guess it's possible. <laughs> well, the, the new commissioner supposedly will be voted on today. I don't know if they'll have a, a resolution or not, but uh, I guess we'll find out when the new commissioner comes in, whoever that may be, if this is a possibility. But, you know, to a certain extent, you've got to live in the now, too. And before we let you go on the, on the subject of uh, Major League Baseball Advanced Media, I saw an article in Forbes recently that talked about how, uh, how the company is growing and evolving and is actually becoming way bigger than baseball, if that sounds odd for a company with the word baseball in its title. You guys are branching off into a lot of really interesting areas. Uh, just give us an, uh, an overview of some of the stuff you guys are doing that's not baseball-related. Yeah, I mean, we're really a baseball company first and foremost. It's in our name, and we're owned by the 30 clubs, so baseball will always be our bread and butter. But I think, you know, our our CEO, Bob Bowman, has really gone, you know, tried to lead us to become a media company. Uh, We do a lot of streaming of live events. We stream more live video than, you know, on on the Internet than any other media company in the world. Uh, Everything from March Madness Online to WWE, website. Uh, We do all that kind of stuff, a lot of private white labeling. We work for ESPN3. Uh, and so forth. So, you know, that's really a big part of our business is the multimedia back end. We have a ticketing company. Uh, we do all kinds of stuff around here. So, you know, baseball is always our bread and butter, but I think, uh, you know, Bob's strategy is to position us to be a successful business, period, that focuses on baseball but can do a lot of other things well, too. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz from Major League Baseball Advanced Media. Corey, you have a Twitter account at Schwartzstops. Uh, it's a really, really good Twitter feed, and I recommend it to anybody. Uh, you made an interesting point not long ago about Cole Hamels, and you pointed to his win record, which is less than stellar, but then you also pointed out he's actually pitching extremely well, and if anybody would score a run for this guy, he might be a Cy Young contender practically. Yeah, I mean, 
His first three starts were a little rusty. Uh, he had a hard time getting back in the groove, but his last 18 starts, he's been as good as, as anybody in baseball other than maybe, you know, Kershaw or Felix Hernandez. Uh, I just read, you know, again, one of these, an, an anonymous scout said that Hamels is throwing better right now than at any point in his career. But if you take out one outing, I guess, back in May where the Phillies scored 11 runs, if you take that one game out, he's, got the few, he's gotten the fewest run support per nine innings of any pitcher in baseball, any qualified starting pitcher in baseball. Um, and I guess that's part of a big reason why I'm frustrated by the classic 5 by 5 categories right now, because I've got a guy who's pitching like a legitimate number one fantasy ace and just not getting the wins out of it. But uh, he's been lights out, and I, I think it's just a good reason to look past one loss record when trying to evaluate how good a pitcher is doing. Well, we always tell fantasy owners that you shouldn't chase starting pitcher wins, and I think that advice is sound given the structure of that category because we can't predict which pitchers are going to get wins. But should we also be telling our fantasy listeners, readers, fellow owners to not try to get pitchers on bad teams because they are more likely to not get wins despite their performance? Absolutely, no question. You know, you look at the things a pitcher can control, basically keeping runners off base, striking runners out, trying to not give up home runs. But the things he can't control, uh, how many runs are scored behind him, how well the defense plays, how well the bullpen pitches after he leaves the game. Uh, and those are things that lesser teams, they don't do as well. I mean, uh, I, I know it's been a, at least a couple of games where Hamels has pitched great, got no run support, left in a tie game or left with a 2-1 or one nothing lead and didn't get any bullpen support and lost it. You know, I have Matt Latos on the same, my same NFBC team. He's been unbelievable so far, left with a 2-1 lead after seven innings against the Red Sox the other day. They blew the lead, so no run support, no bullpen support. So certainly you want to get pitchers who have good skills first and foremost, uh, and then if you can, you get pitchers with good skills on good teams. Um, of course, that's why those pitchers are very, very expensive and harder to come by. You mentioned earlier Charlie Morton of the Pirates uh, with that terrific defense behind them. He has not had a really tremendous season looking at his surface stats, but his underlying skill numbers have been terrific. And Joe Sheehan, our mutual friend, says that Morton's season, like Hamill's for you, has turned him into a believer in using quality starts instead of wins, which I also think is a great idea. Would you really promote that heavily if you had the opportunity? Well, I do like quality starts better than wins because it is more of an individual-centric stat. Uh, you know, if you go a certain number of innings and give up a certain number of runs, then you've pitched well and you deserve credit for that. You know, as far as Morton goes, you know, he's a guy who really has been held back by two things in the past. Number one, health, and he's healthy now. Uh, and number two, command, which isn't great, but it's improving. Uh, he throws 94 and 95. He's got tremendous sync. He doesn't give up home runs. So he's one of those guys where if he gets... You know, if he doesn't give up too many walks, he's, I think he leads the league and hit batters as well, so that's a concern, yeah. even though it doesn't count against the whip. Um, you know, if he's able to stay around the strike zone with that great sinker and he's got really good swing and missed stuff, uh, you know, he's a guy that with bullpen support and run support should be recognized as really a top-tier pitcher. Um, but he's a little bit inconsistent still. But, you know, again, my strategy is generally to find undervalued starting pitchers with good skills and hope they luck into 12, 14, 15 wins, whatever. Morton's exactly the kind of guy I like to look for. In that regard, yeah. A couple of years ago, I did a study for BaseballHQ.com, and I said to myself, we seem to have some pitchers who turn up at the top of lists on strikeout-to-walk ratio or on walks per nine, but nonetheless don't seem to have those really good results that we're looking for. And I took a, a, a look into the, into the data at the time, and I realized that if you add in wild pitches, box, and hit batsmen, 
and say these are also evidence of poor control or poor technique or whatever, all of a sudden you get a different picture of these pictures, and I'll just throw it out there for anybody who's listening. When you're looking at those tables, and if you've got your Excel spreadsheet open, add in those other examples of poor control to a guy's control ratio and into his strikeouts per walks ratio, call it strikeouts poor bad pitches ratio, and all of a sudden you're going to see some guys moving around on that list. A couple, when I did the study, the, the paradigm example was uh, A.J. Burnett. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, what we talk about around here is the difference between control and command. Uh, you know, control is you don't give up a lot of walks because you throw a lot of pitches that are in the strike zone. Command is throwing effective pitches in and around the strike zone so you're not giving up walks, but so you're not getting hammered. You know, two guys that readily come to mind, um, Marco Estrada and Brandon McCarthy, both of them have excellent control. They don't walk anybody, but they don't always have great command. You know, Marco Estrada doesn't have tremendous stuff. And when he's wild in the strike zone, he gives up a ton of homers. He leads the major leagues in home runs allowed. So you look at that four, five, six to one strikeout to walk rate and think this guy should be a stud, but that's not necessarily the case. Same with McCarthy. He's very similar to Morton, but on the other side of the coin, you know, Morton is wild outside the strike zone, will give up walks and wild pitches. McCarthy is wild in the strike zone and tends to throw too many pitches that break right down the middle. So he's not walking anybody, but he's giving up you know, uh, you know, 10 hits per nine innings and has, has been a little bit more home run prone this year. So you have to kind of make a distinction between a great strikeout to walk rate and great stuff that can get people out in the zone. To do that, though, you've got to get into a, a, the next layer of data. It's not something you're going to find on the front page of most stats reports. You know, the whole idea of, of where you are in the zone is, generally speaking, not published in the mainstream stat providers. You have to get down into the dirt a bit. Yeah, you do, but, you know, that's why, and this is not a shameless plug, that's why a site like Baseball HQ is great. I'm a regular user of your guys' site and and your stats because you look for ground ball, line drive, and fly ball ratios. You look for home run to fly ball ratio. You look for batting average on balls in play. You know, strikeout to walk rate is a good first-line indicator, but you really have to be willing to do a little bit more homework, and I think Baseball HQ is a great resource for that. So uh, nobody put me up to that. Nobody paid me 20 bucks for that endorsement. No, but we will be sending you a, a box of uh, chocolate-covered uh, yes. <laughs> uh, Best reward I can get. Absolutely. You also tweeted, uh, Corey, about the surprising offensive record of Colton Wong since uh, the last uh, month or so. First of all, tell our listeners, what has Wong been doing that caught your eye? He's been swinging from the heels, man. You know, his strikeout rate is way up. His walk rate is way down. He, you know, his calling card coming up through the minors was a great contact hitter who would hit for a high average and not a lot of power, and he seems to have turned that on his head, on its head uh, particularly since coming back from, from the minor leagues and then the DL. Um, I'm not sure it's sustainable. Uh, you know, he's not a big guy. He's not a guy you look at as a power hitter. Uh, you know, he's striking out a lot and hardly walking at all, and I just wonder if that's really a healthy change in approach for him. So, um, I have him on my NFBC team as well. As you can guess, I tweet a lot more about my NFBC players. You know, I'm enjoying the home runs, but I'm not sure it's, it's a sustainable approach for him. So uh, it's something I'm watching with a little bit more of a critical eye. And finally, uh, you noted in your Twitter feed, the Yankees have been riding Brandon McCarthy, whom you mentioned a moment ago, pretty hard. Uh, higher pitch counts, asking him or encouraging him to throw more cutters. Could this be adding adding cutters into his pitch mix is a change in his approach? Has that the possibility of improving that wildness in the zone that you were talking about? And in general, how do you think fantasy owners should react to the, that kind of news that the that the Yankees are letting him pitch deeper and that they're encouraging him to throw this third pitch? Well, you know, the change in repertoire can cut both ways. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, the reason that Diamondbacks had him not throwing as many cutters is because they just didn't believe it was an effective pitch. 
but what they did by narrowing his repertoire to his most effective pitches was basically make him a two-pitch pitcher. Uh, and there aren't a lot of pitchers who concede, can succeed that in that respect while trying to go through the order three times. You know, you look at McCarthy's stats with the Diamondbacks. He was very effective the first time through the order, less effective the second time through, and then the third time through he was getting hammered. Um, you know, the Yankees have allowed him to expand his repertoire, not only throwing a lot more cutters, but a lot more four-seamers, which is a pitch he had pretty much, you know, dumped over the last three or four years. So now at least he's got some different looks, even though maybe the cutter isn't his best pitch. It's something he can mix up and get the hitter off pace a little bit. So I, I like that. You have to monitor the, the overall effect of a change in repertoire for any pitcher. You know, going deep in games, I'm not as enthusiastic about that. Um, maybe by throwing some more strikeout-type pitches, so to speak, that's you know, caused him to throw more pitches in general and required him to throw more pitches per inning. You know, he's a guy with a tremendous long track record of getting injured a lot. Uh, you know, he's never thrown 200 innings in a season. You don't have to look very far to find his injury track record. So I'm a little concerned about the fact that they're riding him a little bit harder. Um, but we'll have to see if that's, you know, something that they that the Yankees are doing because they're trying to hang on to the edge of the race or he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year and they kind of just don't care if there are any long-term effects. But uh, as a fantasy owner, I'm, I would definitely be keeping an eye on that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz from Major League Baseball Advanced Media. And uh, Corey, as you know, during the season, we asked our expert guests to talk about studs and duds for the balance of the season. Studs being, of course, guys that you would like to have on your roster or you think that have a, a good chance of contributing down the stretch. Duds being guys you'd like to dump or trade away or certainly avoid at any, in any uh, stretch of the word. So let's start with some stud hitters. Who do you think is a hitter that owners should target in the American League? Chris Carter of the, of the Astros, I mean, I know this is you know, a little bit late to the game because of the incredible power surge he's been on, but the reason I bring that up is because I think it's, I think it's legit. You know, I think he's made some changes to his swing. I have a little bit of insider info on this one that I can't give away in detail, but he's not the same hitter he was at the start of the season. Uh, and I think that you know, the power has always been there. I think he can be a 260, 270 hitter going on, and that adds a tremendous amount of value uh, compared to the guy we thought he was at the start of the season. Boy, does it ever. 220 guy at the start of the season in everybody's projection. If he hits 270, wow, that's a huge increase. It absolutely is. You know, think of him as sort of, you know, uh, you know peak value Adam Dunn, a guy who's going to hit 40-plus home runs uh, and, and not kill your batting average. That's a very, very hard, fi- hard thing to find. Um, so, you know, he, he's a guy that I would be a lot more aggressive about trying to acquire, even while he's on a hot streak and the price tag is up. Yeah, it was, geez, if he hits 270, he's actually a, a contributor in the category because I think the overall batting average in, in Major League Baseball is down around 255 or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're we're not in a you know we're in a pitching era right now, uh, so to find a guy who can hit 40 homers without killing your batting average is, is extremely valuable. How about in the National League, a stud hitter you would target? Well, I don't know about stud hitter, but I would be looking at the Padres' offense right now. Uh, you know, Will Venable, who was a 2020 guy last year, has been hitting a lot better over the last month and is probably available for free in a lot of leagues. Uh, they brought up Reimer Liriano uh, earlier this week, um, really one of their top prospects, another power speed guy. He hit an absolute monster home run last night to kind of show what he's got there. So, you know, we talked earlier about the value of, of you know, pitchers on good teams versus bad teams. When it comes to play, you know, offensive players, you want playing time. And sometimes bad teams are the places to look for that because they've got nothing to lose by playing some new guys. So I would be looking at the Padres. They're a much better offense than they were in the first half, uh, and I think you can start to look at their outfield for some of that production. Moving to the dud hitters, how about a dud in the American League, a guy you don't want? 
<sighs> well, can I just skip right over the National League so I can just dump on Ryan Braun? If you want, <laughs> I guess. Is sure. that okay? <laughs> you know, I have Ryan Braun on a lot of teams. Um, it was a calculated risk, and I have to say that as of right now, it, it looks like it was a failed gamble. Um, his approach at the plate, from what I've seen of him, you know, watching him play a lot, has been absolutely terrible. Uh, he's come out hacking, chasing a lot of bad pitches at any time in the count. Um, you know, his, his, his thumb and hand injury has been a recurring problem throughout the season. Uh, supposedly it's flared up over the last couple of weeks, and he actually is said to be out of the lineup today to give that a rest. He just doesn't look like the, the great hitter of a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I don't even want to mention PEDs because I have no idea what the effect is of those things. But based on his performance and what I know his health to be, he's just not the guy I thought I was getting. And I really don't have a ton of confidence in him suddenly putting together this all-world six-week streak that's going uh, to salvage the season. So he's been a huge disappointment for me. Um, but, hey, you know, I, I made my bed, and now I've got to sleep in it. I talked to a, a fellow, uh, this is a while ago, about PEDs when the, when the controversy was really raging. And, and he said not only do players get an actual physical benefit, but there's a psychological benefit. I'm taking this thing, it's, it's a magic potion, if you will, and that not having it can have the reverse effect. I'm without my magic potion, therefore I have to press or try harder or I can't be as good. It's... I don't know if it applies here or if it's just uh, spitting in the wind, but it's something to think about. You know, a guy relies on it, comes to rely on it, has big seasons on the drugs, and then has them taken away. You know, maybe it's just a, a psychological thing as well as a physical thing. Well, yeah, you know, it, it could be. Uh, you know, that's a valid speculation, but it's ultimately it's just speculation. Um, you know, we don't have we don't have a great body of information to know exactly who was doing what or not, and when they were doing it, and how much they were doing it, and so forth. You know, we don't have a, real, a way to do a really sound empirical study of the effects of this stuff um, physically or psychologically. So I try and, you know, I generally just sort of erase it from my, my consideration when I'm evaluating players. Okay, let's go to the mound. Once again, we'll start with the studs. Who's an American League stud pitcher you'd like to have on your roster down the stretch? Well, uh, you know, again, I don't know about studs, but, you know, the two guys with the Rays, Alex Cobb and Jeremy Hellickson. Um, you know, Cobb maybe has frustrated some people because he's had a little bit of an up-and-down season and some injuries, but his swing and miss stuff is as good as ever. Um, that's definitely a guy would, I would be looking to pick up. And Jeremy Hellickson, his last two starts have been lights out. Um, his stuff right now looks like it did in his best seasons in, in 11 and 12. Um, you know, you wonder sometimes how this guy gets guys out, but he's a good pitcher despite, you know, having ordinary stuff. Uh, and I think that's a guy, you know, He's a guy who's available probably on the waiver wire in some leagues, or was until his last two starts. And in the National League, uh, how about a stud that you'd like to roster if you could? Doug Fister's having a great year. That's a guy I've liked a lot for a long time. We mentioned the Pirates pitchers. You know, Francisco Liriano uh, has really been exceptional over the last couple of weeks. We talked about you know their, their defense. They've got a very favorable home park. Um, their pitching coach, Ray Searich, has said to do, do a lot of good things. So Liriano is probably flying under the radar a little bit because his overall season numbers aren't very good. Uh, but he's pitched as well as ever over the last month or so. Yeah, sometimes there's some gold to be had in those haystacks uh, of information because we look at a guy and his overall ERA for the season's five point something, and you think, well, no way. But what that doesn't show you is that you know three bad starts right at the start of the year, like you mentioned with Cole Hamels, and all of a sudden, if you take those away and just look at the last six to eight weeks, all of a sudden you say, geez, this guy's been pitching really well. Whatever was bothering him earlier may have been fixed. It's worth looking at. Finally, our dud pitchers uh, in the American League, who's a dud pitcher that you think you don't want on your roster? Oh, boy. Well, I'm going to mix it up on you and start with the National League again, if you don't mind. Sure. 
because I have this, this ready at the top of my head, sorry. Sure. Um, Matt Latos, you know, I mentioned him earlier, you know, having him on my NFBC teams, but you watch him pitch, his velocity's way down. He's not throwing his slider at all compared to what he used to in, in recent seasons. Uh, the Reds are scuffling offensively. Outside of a role, this Chapman, their bullpen's been, been very erratic. You know, Latos has a three ERA. I don't know how he's getting it done, and I'm very worried about what the rest of his season might look like. So um, even though I have him on a couple of teams, I'm, I'm not hugely optimistic uh, about his stretch run. Uh, and in the American League, boy, I don't know, man. Um, you know, Jason Hamill's been a big disappointment, certainly not a, not a dud. You know, Justin Verlander. I think Justin Verlander's a guy that pro- people can probably start writing off this season. I'm not writing him off as a pitcher, but you know he's been worked so hard in the past. He's having the elbow problems now. Even though they say there's no structural damage, you just have to wonder if uh, you know if all that mileage is just taking a toll. You know, we saw how a guy like CC Sabathia broke down very quickly. Right. I wonder if Verlander is kind of in that mold. So um, he's not a guy I would be looking to buy low on. I think this is just not a year that's going to work out well for him. All right, Corey Schwartz, tell us where listeners can read more of your uh, thoughts and observations about the game of baseball. Uh, thank you, Patrick. I'm on Twitter at Schwartzstops, and uh, we have the blog, fantasy411.mlblogs.com, where the goose holds court. Zach Steinhorn uh, does a lot of Q&A, and we do Pitcher Ditch, and we put a lot of other cool stuff up there as well. Corey, thanks very much for doing this. We really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, good luck finding more of those chocolate Twinkies. Uh, thanks a lot, Patrick. I hope we win another award for this yeah, one. That would be good, too. Corey Schwartz is the Vice President of Stats for Major League Baseball Advanced Media. Next up, our HQ commentaries, the Metric Minute, Minor League Minute, Pitcher Matchups, and Master Notes, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Now Davis standing in second, a full count to Gibson, three balls and two strikes, and the crowd on their feet. And Gibson calls time and backs out. To work a little bit. Gibson a deep side, regripping the bat. Shoulders just shrugged. Now goes to the top of the helmet as he always does. Steps in with that left foot. Eckersley working out of the stretch. Here's the 3 2 pitch and a drive hit the right field. Way back! He's gone! He's gone! HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Greg Fishwick is on deck with Baseball HQ pitcher matchups. Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Metric Minute. And here to discuss hard contact index and its effect on fantasy production is Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield. A core skill of any hitter in baseball is the ability to make hard contact. BaseballHQ.com's Hard Contact Index attempts to capture this skill by considering how often a player makes contact or his contact rate and how often he hits the ball hard or his hard hit ball rate. Hard Contact Index multiplies these two skills together and scales it to 100, so a player with 100 for a Hard Contact Index is always showing league average ability to make hard contact. Um, Hard Contact Index is abbreviated as HCTX and is available on the general tab of all hitters' player link pages on BaseballHQ.com. 
It correlates very well with batting average, uh, which makes sense given that players who put the ball in play tend to have a higher average, and players who hit the ball hard are likely to see that ball end up as a hit more often. So we can use HCTX, or Hard Contact Index, to help validate swings and batting average either way. Or we can use it as a gauge to see who might be due for a potential rise or fall in the future. A couple examples, Victor Martinez, uh, Maggie Cabrera, David Ortiz all lead the pack with Hard Contact uh, above or around 150, which is elite. Uh, hard contact index has definitely played a big part of Victor Martinez's late career revival and a 320 batting average to date. Uh, Michael Brantley of Cleveland is another example of how hard contact index can really work wonders on uh, players' production. Brantley's hard contact has hovered around league average the last four seasons, uh, right around 100, and that shot up to 128 so far in 2014. So not only is Brantley making more contact, slightly more contact than he has in the past, but he's also hitting the ball much harder and is paying off huge for his owners in 2014. So when analyzing hitters, absolutely factor in hard contact index as one of your staple metrics. It's a tremendous gauge that indicates how often a player is making hard contact. And it's scaled to 100 again, so it's easy to use, and it correlates extremely well with fantasy production. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our Metric Minute commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for our weekly pitcher matchups report. Remember, our Baseball HQ matchup ratings look at every starting pitcher matchup, assessing pitcher skills and recent performance, as well as the strength of the opposing team, to arrive at a matchup rating from plus 5 to minus 5. We recommend pitchers whose matchup ratings are 2.0 or higher, but we warn against pitchers with matchup ratings of 0 or lower. Everything in between we call a risk versus benefit play that you'll have to assess in the context of your team and your league. Now looking at the big matchup of Felix Hernandez at Detroit against David Price, plus three other contests, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. This Saturday features two matchups that are about as different as you can get. The BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool reveals a National League tilt that appears almost boring for a battle between division leaders, while the American League contest looks like a postseason preview of an exciting one-and-done wildcard play-in. It's no surprise that the highest matchup rating of the weekend belongs to Clayton Kershaw of the Los Angeles Dodgers. With a matchup rating of 342, He's an easy pick for his Saturday start at home against the Milwaukee Brewers and Giovanni Gallardo, who has a matchup rating of 120. The Dodgers have the third best record in the majors over their past 10 games, their past 20 games, and their past 30 games. 18 of Kershaw's 19 starts have been PQS dominant, including 10 consecutive perfect PQS fives. The highest matchup rating in the American League this weekend is also on Saturday, also above three, and also owned by a lefty. Detroit's David Price looks to stop the slide of his new Tigers teammates, who have not only slip-slided into second place in the Central Division, but into a tie for the second wildcard slot with none other than their visiting opponents, the surprising Seattle Mariners. The Price matchup rating looks right at 317. And he's had a PQS dominant outing in 14 of his past 15 starts, including two against Seattle. The problem is his Mariners mound mate, King Felix Hernandez. Hernandez has a matchup rating of 233. 
Like Kershaw, Hernandez has 10 consecutive perfect PQS5 starts. And he's had 17 consecutive PQS dominant outings. Seattle allows the fewest runs per game in the majors and is on pace for the rare feat of finishing with a team ERA below three. The most recent time that's been accomplished was 1997. Detroit is only four games above 500 at home. The M's are eight games above 500 on the road, an MLB best 11 games above 500 against lefties, and an MLB best 13 games above 500 against teams that are above 500. The Tigers are indeed above 500 overall, but they are below 500 in their past 10, 20, and 30 games. Will Seattle stay on its hot streak, or will Price prove to be a stopper for Detroit? This one should be well worth watching. Three National League newcomers are starting on Sunday. The Cubs' Kyle Hendricks, the Mets' Rafael Montero, and the Phillies' David Buchanan. All three are right-handers. Hendricks and Montero face one another at City Field. Hendricks has a fine matchup rating of 261. That's based on only six starts, but five of those have been PQS dominant, including one at Coors Field. Hendricks has been a bit lucky with a hit rate of 25% and a strand rate of 85%. For that reason, his expected ERA of 376 is twice his actual ERA of 173. Hendricks lacks swing and miss stuff, but his calling card is control, which he combines with a ground ball tilt to limit base runners and big innings. Montero has a matchup rating of 108. In contrast to Hendricks, control has been Montero's nemesis. He's had only five big league starts, and two have been PQS disasters. Montero will likely be sent down after this start, while Hendricks has a shot to stay in the Cubs' rotation, so he may be a keeper target and is certainly an acceptable choice Sunday in New York. David Buchanan goes into San Francisco's AT&T Park with a recommended matchup rating of 232. He faces Tim Lincecum, who has a matchup rating of 161. Buchanan has had 12 MLB starts and seems to be improving as he goes. After two PQS dominant starts in his first six outings, Buchanan has posted four PQS doms in his past six tries. And Buchanan has room to improve his earned run average of 440 by half a run because his expected earned run average is 389. He may not have the upside of Hendricks, but he does have a shot Sunday against the slumping Giants who are under 500 in their past 10, 20, and 30 games. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he has the pitcher matchup segment here at Baseball HQ Radio every Friday. If your league rules or format let you take advantage of pitcher streaming, then you need to check out daily matchups reports, as well as the exclusive Baseball HQ pitcher matchups tool only at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. With a look at surviving August and beyond, here's BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. I wrote a piece for USA Today this week that lamented our loss of the media at this time of year. Here it is, the most exciting part of the baseball season, and all you hear on talk radio and major media websites, newspapers and magazines is football. 
Now, now, football is a great game, and I recognize that the media rush to opening day this month is akin to what we experience in March. I get that. But I would think there could be more effort made to find a balance. Maybe too many people have already fallen out of contention in their baseball leagues, so who cares, right? Well, research does show that any team in fifth place or lower on August 15th has maybe a 1% chance to win. Looking at the Tout Wars and Labor Experts Leagues, only one fifth-place team is closer than 18 points out of first, and there are two that are more than 30 points out. The average first-to-fifth gap in these seven leagues is 23 points. Insurmountable? Well, we'd like to think not, but I'd be willing to bet that none of the seven fifth-place teams is going to win. The odds of current first-place teams holding on for a title are about 71%. Another 28% is distributed among the teams in 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. So really, only four teams in each league have anything to play for. From a marketing perspective, that's maybe 33% of the total audience, in a 12-team league anyway. Toss in a few teams at the top of the standings that are mailing it in because football is coming, and you can almost see why the media is treating baseball like it barely exists. Uh, Of course, this is highly oversimplified, but the truth is... At this time of year, we have to make our own fun. We have to find our own things to look forward to, especially if you haven't played fantasy football since Fran Tarkenton was a Minnesota Viking. Well, that's my story anyway. Daily games? Well, that's one way to stay engaged. Monthly games? Well, I've talked enough about those. You can give that one more shot in September if you'd like. But even if you can't see first place without a telescope, there is already an opportunity to start thinking ahead to 2015. As an aside, many people have asked me over the years why I never expanded Baseball HQ into football. The reason was always because there's something happening in baseball 12 months of the year. You might be thinking, there's nothing going on in November, and oh, you would be so wrong. When Rick Wilton started bringing fantasy leaguers down to the Arizona Fall League 20 years ago, There really was no baseball going on. It was during the strike. And the best reason to head to Phoenix was to see Michael Jordan attempt to be a baseball player. But in retrospect, that wasn't the only reason. Because in 1994, we also got to see Derek Jeter and Nomar Garciparra and Tony Clark and Joe Randa and Marty Cordova, all future major leaguers. In the fall of 2000, We marveled at the power potential of some unknown third baseman by the name of Albert Pujols. A few years ago, we got to see Bryce Harper and Mike Trout in the same outfield. Last year, we saw players like Mookie Betts, Marcus Stroman, and C.J. Crone, who've already made the bigs, as well as Byron Buxton and Chris Bryant, who are well on their way. Basically, if you want a leg up on 2015, you have to start at the Arizona Fall League, and there's no better way to bridge the gap at the end of the World Series than to be in Phoenix, basking in the 80-degree sun and watching next year's top prospects from the front row. Yeah, the, the games are so poorly attended, you can pretty much sit wherever you want. The First Pitch Arizona Conference is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. It's three days of seminars and socializing for about 150 hardcore fantasy leaguers. If you look forward to draft day each year, well, frankly, this is almost better. 
we have drafts too, and the ball games, and the chance to hang with some of the top writers and analysts in the fantasy baseball industry from USA Today, ESPN, MLB.com, Rotowire, and of course BaseballHQ.com. I don't want to waste any more of your time yapping about it. Go to BaseballHQ.com and get all the details. There's a $100 discount if you register before the end of the month. Look, I know that traveling to Phoenix is not inexpensive, but I guarantee the experience is worth every penny. I don't have a vested financial interest in this anymore. I don't own the company. So I'm talking to you as one fan to another. It's a killer weekend you won't soon forget. And you're sure to come away with insight that the other owners in your league won't have in 2015. Guaranteed. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler of BaseballHQ.com. Ron Chandler is BaseballHQ.com's founder and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also bring Masternotes here to Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 15th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 55 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest for this edition of the show, Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Stats for Major League Baseball Advanced Media, and a man who really loves those Chocodile Twinkies. <laughs> Had a great time talking with Corey about that. That was fun, and of course, all the information from Major League Baseball Advanced Media was really outstanding. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Metric Minute commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our HQ Matchups commentator was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Or more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with our Talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola coming up on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>